And welcome back to Regionally Speaking with your host, Dee Dotson and Tom Maloney. The 12th annual Bill Johnson Black Film Festival commences Friday, February 17th with an opening reception beginning at 6.30 p.m. at the Glen Theater in Gary. The 12th annual Bill Johnson Film Festival was founded by Indiana Representative Vernon Smith and the African American Achievers Youth Corp, Inc. The weekend festival will feature community events, including a master class for emerging students, as well as the Halle Berry critically acclaimed film, Bruised. Joining us now to talk about the film festival is actor, producer, and entertainer, William H. Johnson, a Gary native and an Emerson Visual and Performing Arts High School graduate. Bill is also the festival's namesake. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Hey, right on. I'm glad to be here. All right, Bill. So you're joining us today to share the details of what this year will be the 12th annual Bill Johnson Film Festival. Now, before we get into what you and your team have planned for the weekend event happening February 17th and February the 18th, for our listeners that may be unfamiliar with this cultural event, please take a moment to tell us about yourself as well as share your connection to the region. Well, I'm originally from Gary, Indiana. I, um, you know, grew up on the east side near Pulaski, and I went to Emerson Visual and Performing Arts. And um, I've been knowing Vernon, you know, since the Easter Talent Show back in the day when I was a kid. Um, him and um and Bob Redding used to help him um with all the with the wires and the audio and stuff back in the day. He is the one who decided to do a film festival in my honor. He went to he went to visit my mother's salon one day and saw one of my posters up for one of my films or something. And he was like, you know that guy? And then she was like, that's my son. So he hit me up and asked me what I'd be interested in doing um, a black film festival during Black History Month at the Glen. And I told him, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So to get a bit of insight into who Bill Johnson, the actor, is, tell us a bit about your body of work, as well as share where your love of film began. You know, really, I love musical theater was my was the thing that I I really enjoy. I love to perform, you know, like doing plays, done a lot of musicals in my time, done a lot of theater in Chicago before I moved here. But music is really why I came to LA. Because um, you know, I always sang with a group. I still sing in the band right now. Um but um it was um I remember I I'm one of those people I have to practice doing something. So when I moved to LA, I wasn't active acting. I was singing, but I wasn't active doing any type of stage or theater. So I um, did the Flying Finger of Faith in this, in this newspaper called the, um, the Hollywood Reporter, and I saw a class. It was um, Primetime Actor Studios. Jewish cat named Mark Malice invited me to his class after he had a master class, but I took the, you know, the entry class, but right after that entry class, that same day, he put me in his master class. So I was like, oh, okay. I, I was just doing my thing. And then after that, he was like, yo, he put me in my first little independent movie where I was out there. He was just an acting coach. He just liked what I was doing. And um, and then I just started just meeting people in the film industry um, that were just starting out. Because all the films that I did when I first moved to L.A., everybody was just getting in into it. You know what I'm saying? So I kept in contact with the majority of all the people I've ever done a film with. And those are the people who always normally call me to do another film or they refer me to do another film because out of all the credits that I have, 
I've, I've never, I've never had an agent or a manager to help me do nothing. So, Bill, outside of acting, give give us a little bit of insight of what other things you do in the entertainment industry. Um, well, I coach a lot of actors that you um you see on television today. One of my students um actually booked a major television um show. It's called The Wonder Years. His name is Elijah Williams. Um, I want to say three years before he booked that show, I was reading, um, doing all his auditions with him. The Wonder and, Years, um, are you, I, you're speaking about the reboot of the show, The Wonder the Years. The reboot of The Wonder Years, wow. yes, on ABC. Yes, yes. So young Elijah, I mean, not only can he act, he's a he's a, he's an amazing athlete. <laughs> and his father is a former Harlem Globetrotter. And, wow. and he ended up coaching my son's basketball team, and then I ended up coaching his son whenever he had an audition. And we're still friends to this day. You know what? I write a lot of jokes for comedians. Oh, wow. I write a bunch of jokes. I could. I've done stand-up. I'm pretty funny. I just don't like to. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd rather write the jokes for you and just be funny. If I, I host different things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can be funny easy. Okay. But um, I love writing jokes. Wow, that's quite impressive. So, Bill, let's park for, for just a second, okay? For some, seeing someone that looks like you and, quite frankly, that looks like me in the context in which we're speaking today of planning and organizing and hosting a film festival, it's almost unimaginable. And what I mean by that is that when you think about Northwest Indiana, sure, it's the backyard to Chicago, a pretty booming town for filmmaking, but there really isn't a real pipeline to the creative industry for people in the region, particularly people in Gary. And to that point, representation matters, right? So take a moment to share why you found it so crucial, so necessary for you to host this event year after year in your hometown. You know, before I did this festival, I've attended a lot of festivals. Um, The thing about festivals that I like is you get to submit your film and you get to, you know, be in an audience with people who 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 do not know you, They've never seen your work, and you really get a real gauge on if your writing is good, if the actors are good, because you're going to feel what the audience is feeling, you know. And uh, with today's technology, people are, you know, producing their own projects. Because um, I had the privilege to work with a guy in Gary. His name is Brandon Bowen, and he did a series about Gary called The G. And I actually um, did a couple of episodes for him in that. And, um, and, he tell me it's doing pretty good on Tubi, um, Prime, a um, couple other guys. Now, check this out. It was a guy that submitted a film to me years ago, and he called. He had his film in my festival, and he called me in December because um, all of his movies been doing really well um, on Prime and Tubi. And he had enough money to fly me out, put me up, paid me nice, you know, and he was the guy who actually had sent one of his movies in that was in my festival. So it's a lot of people, wow. even... Even um, I have a young a young gentleman who's doing a cartoon. I'm gonna be one of the voices, and he submitted his short cartoon a couple of years back. So he and I've been going back and forth. So I'm actually when I come home, we're gonna meet up, and I'm gonna be doing some voiceover for his cartoon for his animation. Because see, the thing about the major festivals I used to go to, you would be around Robert Townsend, you would be around Morris Chestnut, and all of these people in the industry. You know what I'm saying? And that's motivation. Mm-hmm. So, and I know everybody can't go to Miami, everybody can't go to, you know, to Cannes Film Festival. So, you know, if you have something right there in, 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 in their community, it'll give them a taste of it. And then that'll encourage people to do another festival outside of Gary, you know, do something else. And believe it or not, the, a lot of the people who submit to my films are from, you know, other states. 
but it's a good catalyst for people to really see where they are, see if they really want to do it. You know what I mean? Because there's so many people do projects and they suck too, though. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. and they need to be around an audience to say, ah, yeah, you know what I mean? Because so many people still don't know what quality is a lot of the time, you know? And that's a big thing. We really got to start thinking about making quality content now that the technology is available for us to do things. So, Bill, for, for some of the filmmakers, including the student filmmakers whose work will be screened at the festival, it will be the first time that they have access to an audience on this scale. And I can only imagine as well that the festival will serve as not only a pat on the back, but also that extra push that they need to continue to master their craft, right? Yes. You always have to learn. You always have to study, not just watch a movie, but study the film. You know, you would be shocked how many, you know, little flaws you'll see in a, in a, in a real high-budget film. You're like, man, they missed that, <laughs> you know? Right. And you study. You listen to the writing. Listen to the actors. You listen to the sound. Watch the cuts of the editing. It's always a, a class when I'm watching a film or a show, you know? Finally, Bill, I know that you do not do the work to host the film festival year after year for, for any of the accolades, the honors, or recognition, rather for the love of film, but more importantly, for the love of your hometown of Gary. So we thank you for being Region Proud, and we thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Not a problem. You know, I, I love my people. The 12th annual Bill Johnson Film Festival was founded by Indiana State Representative Vernon Smith and the African American Achievers Youth Corp, Inc. The African American Achievers Youth Corp, Inc. is a not-for-profit organization founded to empower young African American males by uplifting them spiritually, mentally, physically, economically, and socially. For more information on how to purchase tickets, as well as to see the festival's full schedule, you can visit www.glentheater.com and search for the Bill Johnson Film Festival. And you're listening to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio. Most Indiana residents have not heard of financial aid resources available, and many cite cost as an obstacle to enrollment in post-secondary education. That's according to a new survey conducted by Invested Indiana. Invested is Indiana's only state-based nonprofit financial aid advising and student organization, one of 22 across the country. Invested provides programs that help Hoosier families understand college costs and how to find post-secondary education with the least debt. Joining us today to talk about all of the results of the fifth annual survey is Bill Wozniak, the Vice President of Marketing. Bill, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you so much for having us again. Bill, you've joined us on Regionally Speaking in the past, but for those that may be unfamiliar, please take a moment to tell our listening audience about Invested, as well as the work that your organization does to help both students and their families navigate funding college costs. Absolutely. So we are a nonprofit and we help students, families, schools all across Indiana with anything to do with funding education beyond high school in the best way possible. So we do presentations and we uh, take phone calls and answer emails, anything that helps Hoosiers get additional education and hopefully less student loan debt. 
Great. So Invested recently commissioned a survey with the net results showing that while Hoosiers do see the value of education beyond high school, they struggle with figuring out how to pay for it. Why is that? And to that point, do you believe that that in part could be behind declining college enrollment rates in the Hoosier State? Absolutely. So when we do this survey, the first part of it is always about perceptions about post-secondary education. And once again this year, the responses are off the charts positive, uh, almost uh, 90% saying that they see the value in education beyond high school. And so the masses in Indiana see the value. They uh, definitely look at it as a positive. But the next part then is the cost, the uh, perception of what um, it's going to uh, cost someone to get that education. And because of that, many students and families, they just walk away from the experience altogether. And why that is possibly so important is the net price and the actual price that people pay is often much less than the sticker price. And so people see a number or they think about a number and they get nervous and they walk away when in reality there's a lot of different programs that could help lower that cost. Well, that's interesting that you point out the difference between the sticker price and the actual price. I never even thought about it that way. And I think it's also important to point out that this survey hold a diverse population from across the state. So why did InvestEd see the value in that? Absolutely. Over the years, we have really wanted to look at all aspects in the survey. So we wanted to make sure that we had diverse uh, populations we are looking at. And of course, we look at Um, urban and rural and all the different things because we want to make sure that we are able to offer the help to everyone. And so as we ask the questions and we look for the information from respondents, we want to make sure that we're really asking everyone and getting a thorough uh, set of responses. And what we found again this year was very valuable because it helps us be able to be able to tailor our programming and to create our presentations and our help so that it actually is beneficial uh, to those that, that seek us out. Bill, did the results of this annual survey net any surprising results for invested? I mean, frankly, when I saw the staggering percentage of Hoosiers, 62% to be exact, that do not find understanding the full process of paying for college to be easy, I was a bit startled. Well, the part the part that jumps out at us first is when you see some declines in overall going and those that get uh, post-secondary education, and you see how uh, popular it is, how well it's viewed overall, you start to say, well, something that is so um, looked at positively should not have declines, right? So that that jumps out at us first. And then the point that you uh, just said, where we talk about um, how People are nervous about the cost, and people are nervous um, about how to get it done. How, how, do, I, how do I make this happen? Um, that is where we see the important step where we have to help Hoosiers know how to get that aid that is available, get that help that is available, get that information that is out there uh, so that they can then get the education that they value and they, they see as something that's, that's important and valuable. So are there any other key takeaways from the recent survey? Um, again, as we looked at when we wanted to ask about specific programs, uh, different aid programs that are out there, uh, again, not a surprise, but it was interesting to note 
um, how uh, different programs uh, Hoosiers just didn't know about. So when we get back to why is the uh, enrollment rate declining, when you see that people don't know about this program or that program, these important Indiana funding programs, well, if they don't know it's available, then you can see why somebody might not go through the process and then get that education because they just didn't know that there are these dollars out there. So people definitely value education. They are nervous about student loan debt. The headlines about student loan debt have definitely uh, impacted people. And so those uh, those percentages are high. Uh, but again, it is people saying they're just not confident uh, in the overall process of how to fund post-secondary education that is having an impact on the numbers. So here in Northwest Indiana, we are heavy on the trades with industries like the steel mills, for instance. So what would you say to that high school junior or senior, even freshman or sophomore, that have seen family members go on to high salary careers within the trades without the benefit of a college degree? Absolutely. And you're talking to the son of a steel worker. So my dad, wow. my dad, my dad was a steel worker. So you're talking to somebody who knows uh, about the steel mills very well. Uh, what we always talk about when we go to visit schools is to look at the professions and look at uh, what they're interested in and then get the information. And so we help students and families where the student is going to get a short-term certificate, where they're going to um, uh, go to community college or go to, you know, maybe a four-year full-time, you know, full four-year uh, college, that type of thing. But we help and we sit with families all the time where the students are interested in more of a type of trades or things like that. And so we have tools where we connect to and they can look at what that job is going to pay and what training is required for that. And so anything that is post-secondary education, uh, we're there and we supply information for because there are students of all different types across the state, and we just want to help them on the path that they're most interested in. So finally, Bill, here's an interesting fact that I did not realize until I began to prepare for our conversation today, and that is that Indiana leads the Midwest in its financial aid offerings and ranks among the most generous states in the nation for need-based aid. So mm -hmm. is there anything more that organizations like yours and Vastead can do to help spread the word about some of the state's tuition support programs? That's it, and that's why we reach out to high schools across the state. We reach out to counselors uh, all over Indiana. And we try to get the word out as best we can about the aid that is available. And it goes right on back to what we talked about at the beginning, the sticker price versus the net price. And when you figure in these generous programs that Indiana has, you then take that sticker price down to another number. And so we want families to be able to know that net price, that other number. We want them to know that. So then they can plan accordingly. Is this something that is a good idea? Is this something that works or is it something that doesn't work? But we want them to have that information about these generous programs. Bill Wozniak is the Vice President of Marketing for Invested. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on Richly Speaking, sharing all of the information that I'm certain will help both the students and families understand how to fund post-secondary education. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. For more information about programs and resources available through Invested, you can visit www.investedindiana.org.
The Indiana University Northwest Dental Hygiene Program will help celebrate the 21st anniversary of Give Kids a Smile campaign in partnership with the American Dental Association. Joining us now to talk about the upcoming event is Donna Kraus, the Assistant Dean, College of Health and Human Services Director, as well as the Dental Education Clinical Associate Professor. Professor Krause, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Glad to be here. Professor Krause, you're here with us today to share the details of the upcoming Give Kids a Smile campaign that is hosted locally by the Indiana University Northwest Dental Hygiene Program in partnership with the American Dental Association. Please take a moment to share the overall goal of this campaign. Well, our overall goal is to provide services for those who don't have insurance. So we're looking to, you know, have children between the ages of 5 and 12 years of age that could come to IU Northwest to see our dental hygiene students who would give a free exam, free cleaning, x-rays, fluoride treatment, oral hygiene instructions, anything basically for their needs. We want to meet those. So we have senior dental hygiene students, and then, of course, we have a dentist and two licensed hygienists on the floor that will also check over everything, and everything's free. So we're doing it for Friday, February 17th, and we're hoping to get as many people involved as possible. But we we have to take appointments because we only get so many students, so we'd be happy to have people contact us and schedule an appointment. And how did the IUN Regional Campus jump on board with this national campaign? Well, February is always known as in Children's Dental Health Month. That's a big thing in the, the dental field. So we, we try to reach out and make that a, a big event. We have a lot of people who offices, you know, may give back to the community. But we really want to reach those, those kids who maybe don't have a dental home. And we want to make sure that they're not uncomfortable or in pain and that they're doing well and teeth are coming in the way they should. We want it to be a positive experience for them. That's great, great, because I'm sure you hear this quite often that everyone is afraid of going to the dental office. So it's great that you guys are setting an atmosphere and making it a full experience for those that will be in attendance. So can you share with us once again, what services will be provided as part of the Give Kids a Smile event? Um, well, it's everything. It's basically, you know, we're going to do a free exam. They get a free cleaning if they need x-rays, we'll have those. They get a fluoride treatment. We do oral hygiene instructions to make sure they're, you know, properly brushing and you know, they're aware of that, what foods they should eat. So they're going to be paired with a, a senior dental hygiene student and they'll go through all that with them. And then the dentist, the licensed dentist and hygienist will actually review everything. And we just want to make sure it's a positive event for them and hopefully they'll tell others and come back and see the students again. Indiana University Northwest is located in Lake County, but is this free event open to anyone? Yes, it's open to anyone. If you know, We were pushing February 17th, but if we get a, a big outpour of people who are interested, we will open up uh, the Wednesday before that's on the 15th. We'll open that day as well and do the same thing. So it's again, we're trying to fill up Friday the you know February seventeenth first first come first serve type of thing. We can't take walk-in, so we do have to have a by appointment only. But you know we're happy to treat as many people as can, whether it's Lake Porter County, Stark County. If there's a need, they don't have a dental home, we would love to see them and see how they're doing. So you just shared that this event will not allow for walk-ins. So how can families make an appointment for their children? We'd love for them to call. Um, our number for the dental clinic is area code 
980-6772. So finally, uh, Professor Krause, the Indiana University Northwest Dental Hygiene Program is committed to community outreach, and I've learned so much in preparing for my conversation with you today. So what are some of the other ways dental health services are provided through the school in the region? Well, because we're dental hygiene and we have dental assisting students as well, we provide preventive services, but we want to make sure we're kind of like the the first tier, if, you know, if someone doesn't have dental insurance, they don't have any, you know, Medicaid or anything to pay for it, then what we do is we see patients, it doesn't matter what level they're at, but we only do preventive and then we do referrals. So if, if they're from the Gary area or Portage, wherever they're from, then we refer them to a dentist in their area, in their community. Donna Krause is an assistant dean with the Indiana University College of Health and Human Services. She also serves as the Dental Education Clinical Associate Professor. Professor Krause, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. Earlier this year, a house built by one of Gary's most influential Black-owned real estate developers was named one of the 10 most dangerous places in the state by Indiana Landmarks. And if something isn't done, a key piece of Gary's history will deteriorate to the point of no return. But the good news is that grassroots volunteers are working to save the house and improve the neighborhood around it. Joining us today to talk about the work she is leading to shine a light on what has been called the showplace of Gary is Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, thank you for joining us today on Regionally Speaking. Thank you for having me. So, Jide, as I shared in my opening, you're here with us today to talk about the campaign that you're leading with your organization, Say Yes to Means, in collaboration with Indiana Landmarks. For those that may be unfamiliar, can you please take a moment to share with our listening audience the history of Means Manor in Gary? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Means Manor is a community that was developed wholly by the Means Brothers developers, which is a company that was founded by Andrew A. Means and his wife, Katie Means. They were joined by his brother, younger brother, Jeter Means. At a time when there was a housing shortage for the African-American community due to the political and racial climate at the time, Black people were not only not allowed to access certain areas or neighborhoods, but they were not even allowed to purchase homes through like the normal um, channels that we take for granted, like loans and FHA loans, even uh, GI loans. And Andrew Means was instrumental in erasing that barrier so that Black people can purchase homes and be more, you know, provide equity um, among African American community because they were denied that right. And this Means Manor community was a community that he developed to address that housing shortage in the Midtown community of Gary, Indiana. And he fought very hard so that the uh, FHA would remove that barrier so that African-Americans can get the loans that they needed to purchase the houses and also for the GI Bill to be applied to the housing for African-American servicemen. And they actually were the first ones to, to purchase the homes. He gave them priority when he first built the development. Means Manor, this community of brick bungalows, was developed by brothers Andrew and Gita Means. And so we're talking about two African-American men having the knowledge and the perseverance and, and, quite frankly, the financial means to develop a community of homes for a group of people who were disenfranchised, who were oftentimes cut off from traditional financing, 
and just flat out being denied their right to buy a home and to live the American dream. And as you just shared, many of them were denied their right to access HFA loans or their GI Bill. We're talking about 100 years ago, right? So tell us about how the Means Brothers afforded African-Americans the opportunity to own their own homes. So I understand that not only did they develop the homes, but they also financed the homes as well? Absolutely, that is correct. Before the Means Manor, and it's the proper name is the Andrew Means Park Manor subdivision, before that was actually developed, Mr. Means developed over a 1,000 homes in the area. And for all races, so he was really diverse at a time when diversity was not very popular. And he actually developed a community not too far from me, the man called the Means Model Community. Another one was the F.D. Patterson Community. He also built a building named after his wife. He built another building, apartment complex that was multi-use. that had businesses and living spaces. And that was the Booker T. Washington Terrace Apartment. So up until... What he would do, because, you know, a lot of people could not get the loans due to you know, racism, or he would just take people on their word, and they would just pay him directly. So he didn't have, like, a finance company or anything like that. You know, people would just, just be honest and, you know, pay him back for, you know, whatever, whatever they owe for the building of their home. He also allowed you to pay off the debt. If you didn't have, like, maybe cash in hand, you could work it off by working on one of his projects or working on your own home. So my grandfather actually, you know, was helped because he worked on his own home when it got built because he didn't have the full down payment. He worked on some other homes when Means Manor was being built. So he was really wow. creative wow. in overcoming those barriers and those obstacles. It was just really amazing the way he would come up with just genius ideas and just put it, just have faith and, you know, not worry about, okay, hey, this person might not pay me back. That that didn't stop him. Just went forward with it. Wow. How many homes were built by the Means Brothers? Uh, it, was, it was definitely over a thousand. Some places I read was over 2,000. But he developed communities for uh, African-Americans, for white people. He developed commercial as well as residential so he had an actual multi-million dollar company in the 50s, and that's amazing for an African-American developer. We're speaking with Jide Ekunkanye, founder of the organization Say Yes to Means. Jide, so let's look at history for a moment, right? So the Means brothers built the first homes in 1922, which was less than a year after the tragic events in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which the Mecca and quite frankly, the heartbeat of one of the wealthiest black communities in the U.S. was burned down and sadly destroyed. So I can only imagine that these two brothers, these two African-American men, must have faced obstacles along their way as well, correct? Yes, yes, they did. Many obstacles, but they were very creative in overcoming those obstacles. They started the company with with Mr. Means and Mrs. Means started the company and actually a tar paper shack with only $90 and a typewriter. And wow. they they actually built their first home. They, the building materials were loaned to them by the supplier. And they was able to sell a house and, you know, flip it and pay that back. And then as they start getting more and more work, you know, they were able to just kind of got a little help there. And then he was able to, you know, go take it off from there because he would build houses and then people would like it. And then, the business just grew and grew from there. But he started in the 1920s. And actually, I was told by one of his relatives that the very first house that he built and lived in 
he and his wife actually built it using the skills that they learned from Tuskegee University. And, you know, it just got better and better as time went on. Okay, GD, so I just had a, a moment as you were sharing your grandfather's journey to home ownership and how he worked hard to, of course, pay for his home. But also as a part of that buying process, he participated as well by helping to build his home and can't help but think that the model that the Means Brothers utilized is quite frankly mirrors that of Habitat for Humanity, in which the home buyer participates in the process and is actually truly invested in the home buying giving of their time and their talent, right? And as I am reflecting on your grandfather's journey, I'm also reminded of the Great Migration, which is well-documented and enshrined in the history of America. With over 6 million Blacks leaving behind their lives and sometimes their families in search of better opportunities up North, as well as escaping from Jim Crow laws and segregation, with over 200,000 Black Southerners reaching Gary, Indiana, with the hopes of landing a job at the steel mill. And so ideally, with so many families connected to a business that literally owns the entire town, one would think that housing, or rather enough adequate housing, would be available for its labor force. So how much does the steel mill play in the history of Means Manor? Mr. Means himself started out working in the steel mill when he moved up here from Alabama. My grandfather and grandmother, Joseph G. Ridley Sr. and Tometa Ridley, they were part of the Great Migration, migrating from Mississippi. My grandfather was in the military, and they came up around the time, sometime late 40s, early 50s, and they did what a lot of African-American people did, was live with family members who were already here. And in my grandparents' case, that was my mother's older brother. His name was Ernest Baker. Senior, and he lived with his wife. He and his wife, uh, Orrin Lee Baker, they had hosted and allowed my grandparents to live with them and their family until they were able to secure the funds to purchase the home. My grandfather worked for the tool mill, and um, so he, so the steel mill did play a part because they employed a lot of the people, so they could be able to afford those, you know, have stable income and living wage, so they can support their families. And when Mr. Me started developing this community, my grandfather was one of the original founding owners when it first got built. First Manor was the original manor. He was one of the people that was originally owners of homes that Means initially built because his house was built in 1952. And Mr. Means actually built his house on 21st and Harrison in 1952. So everything was really brand new then. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Mr. Needs was real creative. So it was similar to Habitat for Humanity, but in a sense that the homeowners played a part um, right. in building up the homes. But that was only if necessary. It was like an option that Mr. Needs gave to encourage people to buy homes from him because, you know, they did face a lot of barriers. They couldn't get the financing. So that was mostly out of necessity. Because where else could they get the money? Because you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan to get the down payment as we do now. They didn't have the wonderful programs that they have with the grants and first-time buyers and things of that nature. So it was a lot of, you know, it was not as equitable and as it is now. So that was just another one of Mr. Mee's creative, you know, using his creativity to create that opportunity for African-Americans to live that American dream and become homeowners. So after years of sitting empty, Jeter Means Home, which is located at 2044 Monroe Lane, was recently placed on Indiana Landmark's top 10 endangered list of historical structures. 
And this is where you come in. You and your organization say yes to means in collaboration with Landmarks are working to get Means Manor on the National Register of Historic Places so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, right? So tell us more about what inspired you to become an advocate for not only the Jeter Means home, but also for Means Manor. Okay, well, first I want to begin and say that we're proud to be partnered with Indiana Landmarks as they are a wonderful organization that's preserving history. Every part of the state of Indiana, their body of work is incredible. And the quality of work is just exceptional. So we're definitely proud and thankful to be partnered with such an organization of that caliber. And Jidami is one of the founders of the community. And his house was extremely like modern at the time when it was built in the 50s. They had things like surround sound, as I was told, like the speakers in the wall. It had like the bathrooms that's inside the bedroom not normally, uh, houses were not normally designed like that. And the way it was situated was that when you come into the community, if you came in off of 21st Avenue, you would see that house. It was like a showpiece to, you know, to show like how nice the community is and, you know, to sell um, the community to maybe prospective buyers. And a lot of people used to just come to show the homes or the community as really nice community or a community where Black people kept the community in a very high standard. And the house, along with Mr. Mead's house, were like the anchor homes or the showpiece homes. And it's really, really important that those homes are preserved because they are a vital piece of the history of the neighborhood. And unfortunately, Gita Mead's house has fell into disrepair. And we, as a community, we don't want it to, you know, be destroyed by blight or decay. And so we spearheaded that effort so that the house can be restored to its original glory. Um, the community, even before I even took on the project, the Means Manor community members have been keeping up the house because as long as it's been in the situation that it's been in, you mm-hmm. know how the forest would have taken it over by now. Right, right. But community members have taken their time and their resources, keeping the yard cut, keeping the trees down, you know, because they don't want their house to fall you know, just fall down to the ground and be forgotten. So I'm really inspired by the Means Manor community itself since its inception. It has been a really tight-knit community, a close community. The neighbors truly love each other, but they help each other out. It's not uncommon to see somebody mowing another person's yard or helping them with housework or anything, you know. And it's a family-friendly community where children can play safely always been like that so it's no surprise that they would take it upon themselves to keep a home in disrepair not to go fully completely um, destroyed even though the owner was is absent or you know whatever reason they're not able to maintain the property it was still being maintained the best that it could be you know because they're just outside by the community members and I think that's really the crux of uh, Mead's Manor is that the people had truly loved their community And they do everything they can to keep it to a a very high standard. And they truly have love for each other and a serious, true community spirit. And I think that really is what inspires me also to do the the project to make sure that not only the the memory of Mr. Means, uh, Mr. Jeter Means, legacy, their great body of work, but also included in that is the great community that that is the reason why the neighborhood even still stands. 
because the people in the community are really serious about, you know, having set a certain standard and keeping their neighborhood to be, you know, just a great place to live. Judy, I'm thinking about the height of the pandemic when many of us reevaluated our life's purpose, if you will, and you were led back to your grandfather's home. So is that when you began to do the work that you're doing on behalf of the residents in Means Manor with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Well, actually, it started way before the pandemic. Growing up as a young child, we were always taught about Andrew Means and the Means brothers. That is something that's ingrained since a small child by my father and my grandparents, neighbors, and they will always talk about, you know, the wonderful things that uh, Mr. Means did for people in the community, his legacy, the way he, you know, just like the story I told you about my grandfather working off the uh, debt. My grandfather, you know, he told me that story way before the pandemic. So the, the whole story, the whole legacy, the importance of legacy, that has always been ingrained in me. And I kind of took on the project because I was under the impression, because I always visited my grandparents, visited the neighborhood. All the neighbors knew me, you know, from a child, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always had an intimate relationship with the community, even though I didn't grow up in that community. You know, I grew up actually in Florida, but always well aware of Mr. Means' legacy, his impact on not only the Means Manor community, but the community of Gary. Um, as a whole, you know, how he impacted this whole area and his good works, you know, on some things were known publicly, some things not known publicly, but he was tireless advocate for the community. And, you know, and people really appreciated this. So you were always here. If it's my grandparents were telling me a story, it was my father, it was their neighbors, and they, you always hear good things. And so I thought that the neighborhood's was already like a historic district or has some type of designation as far as its historic status. And I took on the project actually in 2019 when I found out that it was not, you know, set as a historically significant place. And that's what really started to say yes to me. We actually started in 2019 exploring, you know, what needed to place it on the National Register of Historic Places. And we, you know, met with the community and they were all in agreements and gave me the permission to pursue the project. And, um, and that's when, when it all started. So everything else that happened after that, you know, just, you know, things that happen in life, <laughs> you just keep going and you adjust right. to it. In reflecting on our time here today, I cannot help but remember that 100 years ago, two Black men from Alabama developed a community for Blacks in Gary. And so I'm thinking about the historical currency of what that means, right? And I understand that through your organization, Say Yes to Means, you're looking to develop a digital museum of sorts in which you can kind of collect and share those stories that may have been lost. I mean, it's been 100 years to collect any story, any recollection, any sort of memorabilia from that time. And so for those that may have a story, that may have an artifact, that may have something to say, how can they share that with your organization, Say Yes to Means? Yes, um... So you mentioned, thank you for mentioning our Share Your Stories project. Um, we are embarking on a historical preservation project, another aspect of it. And we want to preserve the as much history as we can. So one, one facet of that, preserving the Jidamese house, placing the whole community on the National Register of Historic Places. But, you know, those are just two things. We want to keep the story alive by 
reaching out to the community and asking them if they could share any stories they have about Andromedes, Vietnamese, Means Manor, or anything they feel is relevant to the history of Means Manor is very important and to preserve in the history so that it won't be forgotten. So with this project, is um, we just started it this year, and we really encourage any and everyone in the community that has a story. There's no such thing as an unimportant or insignificant story. Every story is important. Every voice matters. Every voice needs to be heard. And we really encourage you to reach out to us. Either you can contact us by website. We have a special part of our website set up to that, and that's at sayyestomeans.org slash share your story. Or you can go to our website, sayyestomeans.org, and select the share your stories um, button. And we'll have a form where you can fill out and you can submit anything, artifacts, pictures, videos. You want to write a story or you can give us a call to make an appointment where someone can, from our organization can interview you or by any method that you prefer, telephone in person or Zoom. And that number is 773-259-9378. So if you know anyone that has a story or you yourself are interested, by all means, please, we'd be more than happy to, to hear your story and record this story for posterity so that future generations can have this as a, a resource, historical resource that's very important because if, you know, once people are gone, those stories are largely forgotten and they can never, ever be recovered. So, Jide, just to piggyback on the work that you're doing to collect those stories so that the contributions of the Means Brothers won't be forgotten, I just wanted to share that having those voices, having those stories, having those artifacts really and truly does impact the community. So we here at Lakeshore Public Radio, we carry a program called The Welcome Project in collaboration with Valparaiso University. And The Welcome Project, in their own words, they collect first-person stories to help facilitate conversation, but also forge stronger ties within and across our community. And so the work that you're doing to collect first-person stories in relation to Means Manor will have a positive impact on the Northwest Indiana community as a whole. And so we thank you for collecting those first-person stories and keeping the legacy of the Means Brothers alive. We thank you for providing this platform and bringing awareness to the project. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to provide that. Jide Ekunkanye is the founder of the organization Say Yes to Means, located in Geary, Indiana. Jide, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking sharing the work that you're doing to preserve the show place of Gary before it's forgotten. You're welcome and thank you again, Dean. And that's it for Regionally Speaking for this week. We'll be back with you next Friday with an all-new show.